0: Hi, everyone. Before we get to today's interview, um, I want to play a short clip from Frank Buckley. He is a clinical psychologist and Jesuit priest in California, and he received a scholarship to join our Memories, Dreams, Reflections program, which we ran during the first year of the pandemic when our other training programs were disrupted. Um, the only reason that we are able to support students like Frank and help him do the work he does um, is because of generous community members and listeners like yourself. Uh, We can accept donations on our website via Zelle or by check in the mail. And to do any of those things, just click the link in the show notes for more information. We are hoping to raise $30,000 by the end of the year and have already received $7,000. So we are on our way, but we still have quite a ways to go. So literally any help you can provide is greatly appreciated. Thank you so much.
1: Hi, my name is Frank Buckley. I'm a Jesuit priest, clinical psychologist, and psychotherapist here at Homeboy Industries in Los Angeles, California, the largest gang rehabilitation program in the world. The mission of Homeboys is to provide hope, training, and support for formerly gang-involved, previously incarcerated men and women. During the pandemic, I had the beautiful opportunity to do the Memory, Dreams, and Reflection intensive workshop. It was one of the best experiences of my life. It helped me be able to bring something that I'm very passionate about, Jungian psychology, to people on the periphery on the margins. In my work here, it has deepened it and that has allowed me to help patients explore their dreams, their imagination, their desires, and their hopes. It was a way of helping me not only go deeper in my own life to encounter my soul in ways I had previously never experienced, but also to bring this Jungian work to people on the periphery. It has been a great blessing. Have a beautiful new year.
2: Hello, this is Patricia Martin, and I'm your host for Young in the World. Our postmodern tech-driven society has left too many of us feeling isolated and frazzled. Previous structures for building community and finding meaning no longer support us. Joining us today... To talk about how we can recover our sense of the sacred is the author of the book *Power of Ritual*, Casper Terkyle. Casper Terkyle reveals a hopeful new message. We might not be as religious, but that doesn't mean we are any less spiritual. Casper Terkyle is a Harvard Divinity School Fellow and co-host of the popular Harry Potter and the Sacred Text podcast that explores how we nourish our souls by transforming common everyday practices into sacred rituals that heal our crisis of isolation and struggle for purpose. It's a message that we need now more than ever for our spiritual and emotional well-being. In the post-pandemic age, TerKyle is the co-founder of Sacred Design Lab and former director of On Being Impact Lab. Currently, Casper is leading a new startup, the nearness.com, an online venue for people eager to explore big questions with other like-hearted people to build community and belonging. Welcome to Young in the World, Casper TerKyle. Thanks for having me. Great to be with you. No, oh, it's such a. It was such a pleasure to read your book, uh, "The Power of Ritual," mainly because it has so much to say about how we can take sacred opportunity into our own hearts, in, into our own selves, into our own families and communities, and 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 I have to believe that. A book like this really is a book that has a mission in the world. And I'm curious to know how that mission revealed itself to you.
3: Well, (laughs) what a question. Um, You know, I I grew up in a non-religious family. And I think uh, the older I get, the more I realize how unlikely my upbringing was. Because we were not religious, but there was a lot of ritual and a lot of really... Um, close community in in my life growing up. My mother ran a bed and breakfast in our home and ran a cycling campaign. And, you know, was kind of one of those women who ran the village unofficially, you know, the unofficial mayor. And it just meant that there were always people around, um, which drove me crazy as a teenager. You know, I didn't, I didn't want these people at our house. But it, it it just set, I guess, as standard in my operating system, if you will, the sense that we belong together. And so my mission with this book is so much of my work is to help people connect, to connect more deeply with themselves, with one another, the world that we live in, and, and a sense of transcendence, whatever language we use for that. Um, and so that's really what I care about and and what I hope the book helps people realize is possible. Because I think so much of, of ritual and certainly religious light often seems either irrelevant uh, uh, very distant and difficult or cruel and unnecessary. And, and I really wanted people to rediscover the rituals that are already latent in their lives, and that when we pay attention to them, uh, how much they can help us feel more connected to one another.
2: So I'm curious to know how you actually looked at ritual to write about it in in terms of, okay, what are the what are the ingredients of a ritual? I mean that sounds it, it sounds oversimplified. I, I, I understand that, but I am curious to know if I ha- have the power <laughs> to create what is sacred, it feels like a responsibility, and I feel like I kind of want to get it right.
3: Yeah, no, it sure does. you know I've, I was really interested in in those practices that helped us connect, and so I spent a lot of time looking at how kind of traditional practices perhaps have morphed and changed into the context that we live in now. Um, You know, it's an extraordinary moment if you look at the the history of religious life in the United States for the first time, more than half the country is not a member of a congregation. Um, So even though people might still say, I'm spiritual or I'm, you know, I believe in a higher power, whatever language it is, what is actually happening in terms of what people practice It's way down. Attendance is down. Belonging is down. Um, So these traditional kind of anchors of our ritual life are are, are ebbing away. And what I was really interested in is less how can I create a ritual ex nihilo, right, from nothing, because often that ends up being pretty empty. Uh, You know, it feels kind of thin and it doesn't have a lot of uh, richness to it Um, because, you know, we're, we're, we're creating something new. And instead, what I was interested in is how can we adapt and kind of compost, as my friend Jen Bailey puts it, traditional rituals that maybe lived within a religious context, how might they live outside of it? Where can we see the echoes of those traditional practices out in the secular world? And when my colleague and I started looking at that in a in a mapping exercise at Harvard Divinity School, we found these fascinating examples from fitness communities to creative groups to grief groups all sorts of places that were ostensibly secular but when you looked closely there were very very sacred rituals happening there um and then to answer your question directly some of those patterns within those rituals that we saw over and over again were uh, threefold the first was that people brought an intention to the ritual so there was a a desire for this ritual to to do something, right? That it might transport us in some way. That there was a, a a sort of a moral emotion, like uh, generosity or forgiveness or uh, um, joy, that lived uh, in in the ritual. So intention. The second one was about paying attention while people practice the ritual. So this is traditionally why you might see, you know, stained glass or beautiful music or incense, right? These are all very embodied things, things that bring us back to the present moment. So intention, attention, and then finally, repetition, coming back to the same practice over and over again, whether it's every day, uh, a seasonal cycle like a new moon, or on an annual basis, but some sense that this is a a practice that one returns to over time. Um, And so intention, attention, repetition really became a shorthand for me to think about a way of, of noticing these practices, these spiritual practices or these rituals out in the world.
2: You know, it's so interesting that you say this uh, thing about not starting from nothing, right? I think that's a dull negative, but, you know, starting from some basis of some sort. And I had this, I was reading your book during the month that my son's wedding plans were culminating. And um, he and his his wife are from two completely different traditions, um, Judaism and Catholicism. And um, they, they were having a, a very secular service. And I, as a mother, was feeling some desire to, you know, bring some, something sacred to the table. And all I had to work with was my toast. And so I was really racking my brain and everything. And I was even rehearsing these, you know. I would write these things out and then I would try it. And I found myself chickening out. You know, I'm not afraid to fail in public, but it smarts a little. And I, um, especially
3: at a wedding day, that's high stakes.
2: That's high stakes. It was high stakes. And so what would you say to, to, to someone like me in that situation where we're really setting out with great intention? We're really trying to craft something meaningful. Um, what would you say to encourage us to to do it?
3: Well, the the first feeling I notice is just enormous empathy because I I think so many of us are in exactly that situation where we're caught between, you know, especially when it's not your own wedding, when we're caught between a, a context where you know people have intentionally left behind a particular way of doing things, and in this case, it sounded like. And I don't know if that was a question of leaving behind these two traditions specifically or whether it was, you know, the difficulty of navigating two different traditions in one service, which is also tricky. But for one reason or another, you know, people stepped away from the from the the way it has always been done, at least the sense that we perceive the way that it's always been done. But on the other hand, a, a dissatisfaction with the kind of purely secular framework that, you know, a state you know city hall kind of wedding certificate would offer us and we're looking for a way to access that deeper mystery um and so the first thing is like i get it it's really really hard and especially when you're conscious that it's something that's important to you but how do you invite everyone into that particular experience when there is so much difference within the group that's gathered it's really hard and i i think you know, at some um, the statistics at this point are like more than more than forty percent of America uh, Americans getting married don't use a clergy person to officiate the wedding. So even in the way in which wedding services are being constructed, more and more it's being done by friends or family members um, who you know have great love for the couple getting married, but maybe not a lot of skill in creating and a, a, a service and then holding the space in which they can invite people to go into debt. And so I noticed there's a lot more laughter than there are tears at this point in wedding ceremonies. A lot of people go to funny, which is charming and and warm and lovely and you feel together, but it kind of stays in the shallows, right? It it doesn't bring us to the full depth of what this commitment is all about in its beauty and in its pain. When I got married, my my aunt came up to me in the receiving line, and she'd just been caring for my uncle for about 10 years who had, had Parkinson's. And she said, "If you knew what you had just com- committed to, you would never have done it." <laughs> what you know to receive that in your on your wedding day is quite something. But I knew what she meant, or at least I, I didn't know, but I knew it. I would know. You know what I mean? And I think, a, a, hopefully, a wedding is a moment where you can speak that kind of truth. And so, what I would say is that, it, it, first of all, I, I understand, and it's really hard. Uh, I, and yet, it's also necessary because I think what we're in danger of is that we're living in the midst of this meaning crisis, right? And I think you see the impacts of that in terms of people's loneliness, in terms of addiction, in terms of uh, suicide. Even the fact that we no longer have ways of navigating our own experience, especially our suffering, that makes sense within a greater whole. Um, and it's not that we want to naively assent to kind of you know fairy tale stories, and certainly not religious fairy tale stories but at the same time if if we don't have moments where we can tell each other the truth about the beauty and the the horror of life uh we don't know how to navigate it um and so i guess i would say it's important <laughs> it's important that we that we take those invitations and and do the best we can um knowing that it'll be imperfect but nonetheless uh finding the courage to do it
2: you know, you remind me of a quote uh, from Carl Jung uh about meaning, actually. Um He said, suffering, uh, neurosis is suffering that has not yet found its meaning. Ooh,
3: Ooh that gives me chills. Yes.
2: <laughs> and so I think about these rituals and how, you know, sometimes our lives have been made up of milestones that we experience in a faith that we're brought up in. So, you know, a couple gets married in the church, a couple has a child, and there's some welcome to the world ritual for the child. Child grows up, There's there are usually a few milestones there, usually a rite of passage at around 13 that is consecrated By the faith. Um, But then there's all the stuff in between life that are those moments when we are not sure what to do. We are in the between space between one identity and another, one sense of self and another. Have you any experience with uh, observing rituals or participating in them yourself? That address this in between stage before we've reached meaning, <laughs> because we haven't gotten to the meaning, and we just have to, we just have to hold our space until it arrives.
3: Oh gosh, what a great question! My mind goes to a couple of places, and I, I don't know if this is a comprehensive answer, but maybe it's a beginning of some pattern spotting. You know, I, I I do think there's a. Deep suspicion amongst people who are outside of religion for any uniform answer, and so one of the things that I'm definitely noticing is the the, the mixing of different sources of wisdom, um, and that might be practices like you know I think a lot of mindfulness and meditation practices more generally are about how do I navigate my own anxiety or my own suffering in one way or another. So I think people are reaching for practices that help them in the meantime. Um, And as my colleague, Sue Phillips always says, it is a meantime. (laughs) I think one of them is is those practices. I think another place that people go are a sort of transformation, acceleration experience. And what I mean there is, you know, everything from uh, the classic of my millennial generation is the Burning Man. um, But also things like Men's retreats, you know, the Mankind Project, I think is a great example. You're seeing more and more of that kind of men's work, women's circles, new moon rituals that, that don't necessarily equate to a particular life stage, but that give a venue in which to bring whatever question it is. I've been unfaithful to my partner. I've lost my job. Uh, uh, I, uh, you know, my health is st-. like something is changing and there isn't a go to ritual or, or, or a way of m- making meaning with my community if I even have a stable community and so I think people are going to these kind of experiences or the Hoffman process right like these these kind of transformation experiences um to, to, to put that experience into a place so that they can make meaning from it um and you know I I, I think those are beautiful I think one of the shortcomings is that whatever happens in that place it's a transient community. It's not a. It, it, it's always a group of people. Maybe it's twenty. Maybe it's two hundred. Maybe it's two hundred thousand. But it, it, it's a it's a transient community that won't hold you as you return. So there's still a lot that's left on the individual, and this is why I care so much about thinking about what is the the relational and the kind of spiritual infrastructure of the future. If it's no longer a a congregation, let's say that's affiliated with a particular denomination. You know, the standard religious infrastructure that we've had over the last few hundred years uh, for for the majority. what are the structures in which we'll accompany one another over time um that we can that we can make that meaning with for for years to come?
2: Well, you're experimenting with that right now in the nearness dot com right and uh, you know I, I am so I have spent the last decade really analyzing and and researching the digital culture. So I, you know, I am very curious about what you're bringing to this, uh, Casper, because you mentioned earlier about, you know, leaning into the mystery and there's something in that for us. Carl Jung would talk about the numinous and that all liminal places where we stop being in one state and start being in a new state of being, that 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 juncture is typically numinous. And so which is very I mean it's an ethereal word. It's very hard to pin down, but I'm curious how you're attempting that online.
3: Well, it's fascinating to see and COVID, of course, was a massive accelerator for but- not just our project, but so many others. And some have really tried to lean into experiencing that numinous kind of sense, um, whether it's through music or or shared practice. I think what we've done is to really focus on cultivating a set of relationships and a rhythm of time in which to pay attention to that question. So it's not necessarily, I don't want to say that people are having uh, 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 experiences of, of 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 great transcendence on Zoom every week. I don't think that would be fair. But what they are doing is gathering in a group of, of five or six people week in week out, usually for eight weeks. And what we invite people to do, as well as you know, centering themselves, lighting a candle. There's a moment of checking in before we start, and then there is an exercise, and that changes from week to week, which might sometimes be a storytelling practice where people share. A particular experience and sometimes that is experiences of the numinous whatever language people can can find to make sense of that sometimes it's a, a sort of analytical practice where we're looking at what are the values that are most important in my life and where do i embody them and where do i fall short um or it might be a reflection exercise on a piece of text or a piece of music or an embodiment practice we're, we're essentially trying to give people as many roads into these meaning conversations as possible um Sometimes it's a visualization. You know, there's all sorts of different ways of, of, of doing it. And what I'm thrilled about is that it helps people, I think, integrate the the experiences that they're having in their life right now. Uh, and sometimes that's dramatic, right? Going through a divorce or a new diagnosis or something. And And sometimes it's the sort of hinterlands, I'll say. You know, a lot of people have talked about something over the last few years has shifted and my old assumptions about the world no longer hold true or the old assumptions about who I am no longer hold true. I want to find a group of people who are kind hearted, right? People are going to show up who I can trust, who are dedicated and are going to put into this like I am as much as they can and to get together and try and make sense of it all. And And that's what's happening in the nearness. Uh, and those groups are happening online. Um, and so, I'm excited about the the small group modality because it feels like the right kind of size of group of people that you can really make a commitment with and stick to it. So more than 90% of people who sign up for the NIS make it through all eight weeks, which for an online peer facilitated experience is extraordinary. And I would like to think it's because they love us, you know, hosting the experience. No, they love each other, right? That over time, that intimacy and sense of friendship and camaraderie means you realize oh, I'm not just showing up for me, I'm showing up for the rest of my group. They're they're depending on me as much as I depend on them. And so for me, that's a really, really beautiful it's one model, I think, of what the future might hold.
2: Well I can also probably imagine that people, if they're sticking with it and they have developed a friend group, a cohort, it's it's a bit of a pilgrimage, isn't it? I live in love a very old yes. school way. Yes.
3: Totally. Totally. Yeah. And, and, you know, I love that idea of the communitas that forms on a pilgrimage, right? That some of the boundaries that keep us separate in our everyday life, in this kind of in-between experience, that liminal space, new types of relationships can form, which you might not have expected. Because a lot of people will say, I would never have chosen to sit next to these five people. But I'm so glad that you matched me with them because they were exactly the people I should have met, you know. Um, so it it breaks down some of those barriers in a way that a pilgrimage does too, I think.
2: Very good. I'm curious about this phrase you have in the book, uh, moral emotions. I, can we unpack that?
3: Yeah. Well, this comes, I should say, from, from Daka Keldner, who wrote forward and who is uh, a wonderful uh, scholar at UC Berkeley. And he talks about the way in which Rituals and these practices like we've talked about center to moral emotions like generosity, like forgiveness, uh, like hope um, and so it is a discipline to cultivate those moral emotions and, and in religious traditions you know you, you you see that show up in all sorts of ways. Um, in Judaism there's a whole school of practice where there's uh, you know 13 particular of, of these moral emotions they don't use that language exactly but the, the, the you know and you meditate on on one for each week, uh, and you seek to exercise it in a way in the Christian context, you might think of it as formation that you're cultivating these gifts, uh, um, in, in your life. And so, uh, I think rituals sometimes can be, um, misused. And it's been interesting to hear over the last few years, the kind of friendliness of ritual and, and, and the way in which corporations will use that language. I mean, there's even a, believe a makeup brand that's called rituals. Um, and the, they they kind of uh center the ritual activity on their particular product rather than on the moral emotion. And so I think one of the things I'm passionate about is how do we ensure that the the rituals that we're practicing and that, that that the you know that these practices that they shape us. And so that we're aware of the narratives that they hold and the way in which they're forming us because I think if we're not careful we end up being formed into the image of something we might not want to become. Uh, and so that's why it's so important that we have that intentionality and that moral emotion that that lives at the heart of the uh, of the ritual. So, for example, maybe to make it kind of concrete, you know we we um we end each nearness conversation with a very short blessing. It's an invitation to take three breaths of gratitude, one for the time that we have together, one for our bodies that can take this breath, and one for the transcendent moments that we've shared in our time together today that remind us of the bigger thing that we're all part of. And so it's it's just a way of centering through a very simple breathing practice, you know, what it is that we're here to do together.
2: You know, it's interesting. I was thinking about, as we talked about the moral emotions, uh, I had a conversation recently with uh, a relative who is living in a major market and is still uh, practicing his faith and formed a men's group about 10 years ago and continues to run it. And it has been overwhelmed. It used to be 25 guys, and it is now cresting 200. Holy moly. Wow. And I asked him, right, I asked him what he thought it was about. And the only thing he could figure out is when, you know, they you join... You're asked to fill out a little form and, you know, what, what other religious practice do you hold? Like there, you don't have to be of that faith. It's nice, but they're, they've opened their arms and the preponderance of these men are coming from fundamentalist faith groups. And then when asked why they were attracted to this, and this happens to be a a Catholic church. They were drawn to the sacred and to the symbols and to the rituals. And I just thought, it's so interesting. You would, it's it's a... um,
3: Counterintuitive in a way.
2: Totally counterintuitive, but it speaks almost... To the question I think you were raising earlier about uh, a makeup brand um, (laughs) taking on rituals that will invite people to see themselves as transformed through the product, um, that I think people are looking for something they can trust that is true or that is at least uh, tried and true. You, 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 do do you see what I mean?
3: A hundred percent. And and I think also that won't shy away from the difficulties of life. And and I think this is part of, you know, we're in the midst of this epic move away, you know, the ex evangelical trend, right? People who've maybe grown up in the evangelical church or more fundamentalist traditions who who are stepping away and going through this phase of deconstruction. And often what What initiated that was either an experience of, I don't fit the mold, right? There's something with me that does not make sense, or someone I love, maybe they're gay, maybe they had an abortion, whatever it is, that the world is more complex than this simple theology makes space for. And so I think traditions that can hold that complexity without condemnation uh, and that have space for embodied practices and beauty and especially if there's that long tale of tradition, I think that's very attractive. Um, one of the case studies we looked at some time ago, which uh, still continues, although with a different uh, a leadership team now, was Nadia Bolt's Weber's community in Denver, the, the House of All Saints and Sinners. And, you know, it has a very, very progressive theology, but its liturgy was deeply traditional, very, very old school Lutheran, and but very participative in its leadership. And so, you know, you have like, trans people showing up helping to lead this you know 17th century <laughs> you know things that go back hundreds and hundreds of years um in its language even just just really striking and i think it's because it gives a sense of the magical authenticity word so much of what people are looking for is is a place where they can feel authentic but also a, that a tradition feels authentic and i think this comes back to what we were talking about before if you try and create something out of nothing, it doesn't it just lacks that sense of depth and tried and true authenticity which which you mentioned so that makes a lot of sense to me and I'm, I'm so glad that, that that men's group is growing that's wonderful
2: well i I think it's also maybe a reaction i'm I'm really you know I have done zero study on this phenomenon, but I do begin to wonder if we are burning out on cruelty
3: oh well, I hope so that
2: the online world you know it it's uh, i think there is a sense of fatigue and i think there's also a sense that people are beginning to see that what is going to be important in the 21st century for at least the next decade is how human can you be right because we're facing the the specter of artificial intelligence and the question is you know, what? what's our role? And certainly, at, at the base is what kind of human being are you?
3: Yeah. I I, I often kind of joke that one of the jobs that religion will help, need to help us with is to know what it means to be human. Because in an age where we cannot tell the difference, perhaps with, you know, whether it's a bot or a human that we're interacting with, not just in text, but soon in voice and, and perhaps even beyond um h- how do we know that we have value because we're not going to be as smart or as fast or as cheap or whatever it is like where you know where does our value come from and i think that's why i'm passionate about using language like the word soul because it even though it's this very um you know difficult to pin down notion it 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 gives us a way into Talking about the inherent worth and value and dignity of, of human life, that I think will be more and more difficult to to differentiate. Yeah, I think you're exactly right.
2: Well, you talk also about the cost of isolation in the society, and I think you were you were working on this book uh, during the epidemic, right? The COVID epidemic. It, it came
3: out actually in in the first three months of COVID. So this the trends that I was pointing to already were very very embedded. Before COVID, and COVID obviously just just made them even more uh, even more prevalent. But yes, the, the phenomena of of working from home, uh, of, of later marriage, uh, uh, of uh, fewer people having children you know we're, we're just spending more and more time by ourselves. And the sociologists describe that as social isolation. But on top of that is the quality of our relational connection. And so even when which which they describe as loneliness. So there's the structural ways in which we spend time by ourselves, but then there's also our experience of the relationships that we do have, which I really do think social media has impacted. And and that sense of loneliness on top of the the social isolation is really shaping how people experience their life. And, And I think the biggest challenge of that is that rather than driving us towards connection, as you would think, it actually heightens our threat perception and we become even more defensive and more likely to isolate. And so- Structures that help people connect, I think, become more and more important because we can't just rely on individuals to, you know, pick up the phone or knock on a neighbor's door because the more we're alone, the more we feel threatened by other people.
2: So I'm thinking about this in terms of moments when we all traditionally gather. And, you know, as we look toward the holidays, those are times when there are long standing rituals. And we all seem to partake in them in, you know, pretty similar ways, right? There are markers for those. But as people listen to you now, if you could give them some clues or some thoughts about moving through the holidays and approaching them with the intention. To strengthen the bonds of the people who have gathered, and to nourish people—not just their appetites, but their souls. What, what would you say?
3: Oh, I love this question so much. I truly think parties will save the world. <laughs> I really, <laughs> do. I really do. So, I—if if you're listening to this and you're thinking, "Oh, maybe I should post something," please do, please do. And you know, the the things I would turn to, as you say, not just to focus on our appetites, which so much conversation around all days is. Is about the recipes and the food and I, I would say that's really secondary uh you know food is to get people on the door but what really matters is the experience you have together once you're once you're in person and so um you know a couple of things that you might consider uh one is uh just structuring a conversation with a with a slight uh, a slight invitation and i created a little project with a friend a few years ago that we called the thanksgiving project where we just broke down 20 questions and cut them into scraps of paper and we put one little scrap of paper on each dinner plate, and it just gave people a question to ask the table or a question to answer themselves. And it might be something as simple as um, "What is a new skill that you would like to learn?" or "Who's someone that you're really grateful for over the last three months?" or um, "If you were to start life all over again, uh, what career would you choose?" You know, just questions that that are open ended and generative and might help people who already know each other quite well get to know each other in a different way in a deeper way so a very simple kind of structuring question practice like that or and this is something i love to do every year around christmas time my husband and i host a black tie christmas carol sing-along spectacular Uh, and so all our friends come over in black tie and um we we sing christmas carols in you know four-part harmony and it it's silly and it's fun but what what it does and i think singing you know, like, like other practices, uh, it allows you to connect with each other in a way, even without conversation, because you're, you're breathing at the same time. You're sharing this experience of creating beauty and hilarity together. So whether it's a games night, whether it's a music night, whether it's a movie and discussion night, you know, don't, don't just get stuck with turkey or ham, kind of add that layer of, of, of social design or spiritual design on, onto the food, um, and you'll you'll be surprised how much it means to people, and um, and and that it will really sit with them for for weeks to come. Um, and you know, my my hosting rules are are very simple. You know, make sure there's a the toilet is clean, and there's a, 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 you know a candle handle the bathroom, and that you've got some glasses ready, and then everything else is fine. The house doesn't need to be clean. You know, you don't need to worry <laughs> about anything else. Uh, but Bringing people together, I really think, is like a life-saving mission.
2: So I have to ask you. Yeah. Just as we wrap up, your go-to ritual, the thing, this is the desert island ritual. Casper <laughs> to where it doesn't matter, nobody's looking, right? You're at the end of times, but you're still doing the ritual.
3: You know... One that I've really relied on over the years is I wake up in the morning you know, and as I'm getting dressed and going to the bathroom, putting on moisturizer, there's a moment where I look in the mirror and as I'm putting the moisturizer on my face, I'll say to myself, life is full of joy and suffering and today will be no different. And I find it such a helpful balancing ritual that it reminds me that there will be things today... That are beautiful and joyful and you know, make life worth living. And then there's gonna be moments of pain and suffering and humiliation and whatever else life throws my way. And it 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 just reminds me of that kind of enduring, yeah, I guess wisdom that that those two things are, are both real and ever present. So that's one that I I I have depended on uh as the years pass. And you know, on the rare day that something seems to be going just perfectly, I, I've genuinely had this happen. Where I look back at the end of the day, I was like, "Huh, today it was just great. Nothing bad happened." And I stubbed my toe. Uh, <laughs> like, there
2: it is. Uh, there you so, go.
3: <laughs> that would be, d- that would d- be my just purpose. to
2: make you whole. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> oh, Casper, it has been delightful to sit down and talk with you.
3: Thank you for having me. And I, I'm so touched by your invitation and, and just really appreciated this uh, this conversation. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about training programs, live and self-study courses, archives, this podcast, our blog, or to find Jungian analysts near you, visit our website, youngchicago.org. Thanks to our 2022 donors who gave at the contributor level or above Barbara Anand, Juni Alcott, Usha and Ashok Beatty, Building Leaders Inc., Judith Cooper, David J. Dalrymple, George J. Didier, Mary Doherty, Ryan Mayer, Horace Matthews, Judith A. Robert, Diane Sherwood, Lawrence C. Tingley, Deborah Tobin, Don L. Troyer, Robert Ulrich, Gerald A. Weiner, Ellen Young, and Way Zhang. You can support this podcast by making a donation at our website, newchicago.org.